I was, holy smoke, I'm on the wrong career path. This is pretty bad. I'm in my early 30s. I've invested all this time. Oh my God, what am I going to do? And then I had the shift of starting to realize we're all hemmed in by these job descriptions and these roles that we think are somehow written in stone and they need not be. You can sculpt the job to fit you better and if and if somebody doesn't allow you to do that, you're not in the right place. This is the Sustainable Ambition Podcast, the podcast that explores how to be ambitious and have fulfilling work from decade to decade without sacrificing your life or yourself. I'm your host, Kathy Onetto. Today, I'm joined by Doug Milliken. And building on the last episode, Doug's story is another perfect reflection on the podcast's exploration. I was lucky to work with Doug at the Clorox company, but I left before Doug did. Doug had a 35-year career at the company, with his most recent role being VP of Marketing and Transformation. During his tenure, Doug held various senior leadership roles focused on innovating the company's brand-building model and growth capabilities. He was the only employee in the company's history to win the CEO Award for Outstanding Leadership twice in a career. In the last year, Doug retired from the company, but that doesn't mean he stopped working or pursuing new ambitions. Today, Doug is co-founder and partner of Creamer & Milliken, a boutique consultancy that helps clients build cultures that drive engagement, commitment, and ultimately performance for their organizations. I wanted to speak with Doug for a few reasons. First, he is someone I've admired for a long time for how he has managed his career. He really is the epitome of sustainable ambition for me. He has managed his career in a way where he aligned his ambitions to himself, and he's successfully navigated a career over time and now is stepping further into a new ambition as he enters a new stage of life. You'll hear in this conversation an honest account of Doug's career experience in his early 30s that led him toward a much more fulfilling path that resulted in achieving career success on his terms. He'll share how he did it, which is an approach we can all learn from and act on. Plus, I was interested to hear more about the rich culture Doug created in his last role at Clorox that had tremendous results for the people on the team and the organization. I also wanted to talk to him about the work he is now doing around helping companies build culture, and based on this, what he sees as important in today's world of hybrid work in AI developments. So a lot to cover in this conversation and a lot of great insight. Let's learn more with Doug Milliken. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kathy. It's totally my pleasure. So before we dig into your career, I wanted to ask you, how would you characterize a successful career? The way I started defining a successful career back in my early 30s is doing what I'm good at, what I love to do, those are kind of related, at a place that values that. That another way, being able to express yourself, your being, at a place that sees that and recognizes it. And all through my career, when we'd have career discussions and write down your career desires on a piece of paper, on a form, this is always what I put as my ambition. Do what I love to do that I'm good at, at a place that values that. As you can see, it's totally self-defined. The bar for what is a good good career um, is, in my case, I, I always thought of it as, as an internal bar. 
versus a specific thing that I was setting out, a place I was setting out to accomplish or a, a job title or amount of money to be made. This is something that I really admired from afar in terms of watching you navigate a career and navigate a career at Clorox. This might have been an inaccurate assumption on my part in terms of my perception of who was viewed as being a success or who had potential at Clorox, that one had to follow a specific path, like Mm -hmm. beyond the GM path or what have you. And I felt like you were able to honor exactly what you just articulated, and you were able to work with the company, it seems, to honor how you were defining success for yourself. So was that an accurate observation? And I'm curious, because I don't know that everyone there, I almost feel like you were ahead of your time in this way, Mm -hmm. Doug, that not everyone, I think, was able to either knew to or was able to speak up in a way to have the company help them Mm-hmm. achieve this type of success. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I probably should just tell you the story of how I got to that spot and ended up learning that I think we're all, we all have much more, we should have more agency than we, we think. So I started out in a very traditional career path in, in brand management. And as you know, that was the, or is the path to general management, being the head of a business, a general manager of a division, CEO in a company like a Clorox. And that's what I assumed I wanted to do. Uh, but I, during my time doing that, I had a lot of ups and downs. There were certain roles I loved, certain roles I hated. I had several roles that I realized were really bad fits. And as a result of that, put me into a really enormous amount of stress. I had several episodes of really extreme anxiety that I realized were, were because I was in a job that was requiring something of me that wasn't me. And so as a result of these ups and downs, I decided to try to figure out what the heck is this about? I've had jobs I love, jobs I, I had to ask them to take me out of because I was in such a bad strait. So one week I kept a diary. So I had a little piece of paper and I divided it into three pieces. One column was what I loved that I did today. Second column was what I hated that I did today. And the third column was what was neutral. At the end of every day, I spent 30 seconds just jotting down the tasks in each of those columns. And on about Thursday, I looked at this list to see what the pattern was. And the pattern was very clear for me. I looked into what I love to do column, and they were all things that were largely kind of abstract, creative, strategic thinking, working on advertising, working on the strategy of the business, working on new products, innovation, things like this, more future-oriented and more, as I said, creative, abstract thinking. All the stuff in my hate column was all the very tangible business management activities close a profit gap. We lost distribution at this customer. There's a problem at this plant. So at that point, I looked at that and then I thought, well, what does a general manager do? And I, at that time, had enough knowledge of what a general manager did. And I realized they spend, as you go up on this path, you spend less time in my love to do column and more time in my hate to do column. And I had literally a panic attack because I'm sitting in my office realizing, oh my God, I'm on completely the wrong track. 
And I've spent all this time invested in going on this track, thinking this is what I want. And it became just blindingly clear to me, I'm completely on the wrong track. So what ended up happening is within a few days, I just had an idea. It was actually seeded by somebody else of a totally different job that didn't exist. And it was a job really kind of innovating our marketing model, innovating the capabilities of how to do marketing as opposed to working on marketing on a particular business. It was very half-baked. And I went to my boss at the time, Glenn, and I said, Glenn, I have this half-baked idea for a new role. What do you think? And he said, you know, write, write a job description. So I did that. The next day I brought it back and he said, yeah, sure. And I realized at the time, you know, for him, it was a very low risk thing. What the heck? So what I did, I don't think I even really understood what I was doing at the time, but I made up a new job. And at that point, um, there was no, there was nothing to follow. They had no idea what I should do. They just thought this half-baked idea seemed okay. So at that point, I kind of followed my curiosity. I got in on a Monday morning and I was like, what should I do? Actually, I had another panic attack about that. What should I do? And I just said, well, what, what, what around here is interesting? And so the very first thing I realized is, boy, we do all these new products and we have no process for doing innovation. That seems goofy. And I've heard about there are these processes of how to do innovation and we should adopt that. And I built that and, and, and brought that in. And then I started realizing, oh my God, there are all these things. We have no, we have no principles about what makes for good advertising. We have no structure around how to evaluate packaging. We have no this, we have no that. And I just started building all of this. Um, and so I was following my curiosity. And I think most importantly, I was doing the work in a way that worked for me because there was no template. There was nobody to say, well, this is how you do this job. So I just was doing it in a way that, that worked for me. And these were all things that the company valued, that we didn't have all this. So they were like, great, keep going. We love this. This is good. And it was, it was helpful to people. So this then just put me in a position to succeed because I was doing what I was really good at in a way that unleashed my particular way of, of doing things. And the company was finding that there was value in it. And over time, I just started navigating from role to role. So I, I think I actually evolved what I did about probably about 10 different times, 10 or 12 different times over these years. I started doing this within one division and then I evolved it to doing this at a company level. Then I went from sort of building these individual practices to building like an integrated brand building model. And then I'd see how this bled into something larger. I ended up leading digital transformation for the company. So all of these things kept evolving and growing. And as a result of that, every single job I had, so I had 16 job titles at Clorox, 15 of those, never existed before I took them and never existed after I exited and, and evolved it. But I guess the reason to go back to the beginning for this story is I did it in a way out of necessity. I did it because I was actually in a bad way. I was, holy smoke, I'm on the wrong career path. This is pretty bad. I'm in my early 30s. I've invested all this time. Oh my God, what am I going to do? This is what came to me. And then I had the shift of starting to realize, well, anybody can do this. We're all hemmed in by these 
by these job descriptions and these roles that we think are somehow written in stone, and they need not be. You can sculpt the job to fit you better, and if and if somebody doesn't allow you to do that, you're not in the right place. So that's a bit of the story of, of how I got to doing what I was doing. I love that. So much wisdom on what you just shared. And you're really, or again, on the forefront of kind of job crafting, mm-hmm. if you will. And I, what I wonder about is there is a side of it that is you had the courage to ask and to step out and say, this isn't working for yeah. me and to listen to your own like body and to what you were feeling about, you know, the path you were on and to have that curiosity and that inquiry. But you also had a boss and a company on the other side that was open to you doing that exploration. Yes. And so it seems like it's a two-way street. And I'm curious, like, you know, do you think it would work if everyone went to their bosses and kind of said, hey, here's how I think I can sharpen my role to have it fit better both for you and how I can contribute and add more value to the organization. You're completely right. It's a two-way street. And I was incredibly fortunate that I had a boss who said, sure, when I asked to do this and the company seeing value in that over time. So that it was, it was, I was very fortunate to have that set of circumstances. And I don't think it's realistic that everybody can just march into their boss's office and say, I have, you know, this new, uh, a whole new idea. What I do think is realistic or should be something that's um, entertaining is this idea of job sculpting or job crafting. And it could even be around the edges. I did this with the last team I led. We were very intentional about, we do have a role. There's a data scientist or a marketing technologist or whatever it might be. But let's think about what should be in that job that works for you, your expertise and what what you need. So the content of the job, how should we shift it around and Equally or more importantly, how is it that you work? What is the best way to unleash your talent? And how do, how do you then do this job in the way that worked for you? Because this is what I've just been, you know, adamant about my whole career. The way you are going to succeed or the way a company is going to get the most out of somebody is by leveraging them at their best. By definition, a company is not going to do well by leveraging you when you're kind of 50% you know, of your horsepower. Therefore, it's in everybody's interest to say, how do you work? And how do we have you work in a way that unleashes all of your ideas, your capabilities, whatever it might be, that's how you're going to win. So I think this is what people should or could strive for. And certainly managers have to be open to saying, how do you work? What about this job should we not have you do? Maybe you're a brand manager. It's a very traditional job, let's say. Well, maybe there's some parts of it that actually we're going to move to this person. And you, how do you work? And let's make it work like that. And if you do that, everybody's going to crush it. That I think is realistic. It takes self-reflection and the ability to articulate that to somebody. And it does take a boss or a company culture who is open to 
doing that and understanding the benefit of it. And, and beyond that, I do think there are many instances where people can be thinking more about creating a role that didn't exist because they see something that the company needs that's not being addressed. And we shouldn't be shy about saying, hey, I have, an, I have an idea of something that we ought to do. We may talk about this difference maker concept later, but many of these people we've studied, uh, successful people who made big impact despite having not very much authority, many of them, like me, ended up crafting all new roles. I mean, if you think about it, I, I, my experience at Clorox, in any given year, we had so many new jobs that didn't exist a year or two ago because there's so much change in the world. I, I think we all too often think that the boxes are very rigid. They're the job, it's called this, that job goes year after year after year, what's required of that job stays very similar. And I think that's, um, I think that's not the case. I really appreciate this because as you're saying, the world is changing so much today and companies would almost benefit, right, from their employees who perhaps may be even closer to the marketplace or seeing things that they're not seeing or seeing things that their customers are experiencing, say, and bringing forward like, hey, I see this opportunity and actually I could have more um autonomy or power in in helping to shape where the company goes and have input if I were to step into expressing where I see opportunity for a new role or to add value in a particular way. So that's on the employee side where they can step forward. And then I also appreciate what you're saying on the employer side or in a in a boss's role or a manager's role, this idea of even just simply asking, well, how do you work best mm -hmm. and trying to accommodate that? And I wonder if people don't ask those questions because they think it's going to be too hard to accommodate. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm curious in w when you have worked with individuals and in, say in your last role and trying to create that type of space for people, is that hard to do to actually accommodate how everybody works best? Or is that you know, not really. It just takes more of having a conversation and helping everybody understand how e how we each work best. I think it takes time. I don't know if it's hard, but it takes time. You know, there's there's a lot of unspoken desire for control in a large organization. And I think even it comes down to a manager and you're feeling I have to deliver and I have people who have to deliver projects and work and I need to control. And it leads us to kind of get the things really, really in a box. And it's much easier and it's quite time efficient to say, here's the way to do this work. Flipping that on its head and getting yourself to a place where you realize, well, actually maybe the best way for this person to do their best work is to understand how do they work. That does take time. And so what it requires is that you change your thinking of what it is to be a manager from my job is to put some control in place to ensure deliverables happen. I've got timetables, I have all this stuff. Um, to saying my job is how do I help somebody to understand their strength and figure out how to bring that strength out in their work. So. On our team or with my direct reports, we spend a lot of time talking about what are you good at? What's a best day 
at work for you? How could we change some element of what you do or what this job requires to make that work for you? Some people that and that takes time. They're like, oh God, I never thought about that. I have to think about it and back and forth. And so it it is hard in that it is a shift in mentality. And you may feel like, oh, I'm not controlling as much. And you have to devote a significant amount of time to it, which ends up meaning you realize my job as a manager is different than I thought. Because that's this is how I'm going to spend my time is figuring out how to mm-hmm. how to help other people sculpt their job. You know, back to the theme of your work, when you're able to do that, when people are able to do their work, doing work that they love, and they're doing it in a way that is their natural being, they are going to sustain that at a high level of energy and engagement for a really long period of time. Why did I stay at Clark's for 35 years? And as my wife always tells people, I don't understand this guy. I watch him leave and go to the car. And he's like skipping to work every day. Like, how is this happening? Well, it's happening because I was lucky enough to be able to do this sort of job sculpting. But every day I was doing what I love to do in a way that worked for me. So this is, to me, the secret of the sustainability is if you can, for yourself or other people, put yourself in that position, then work is, you know, I wouldn't say it's fun, but work is an expression of you and therefore deeply fulfilling. And you're going to keep after it with a lot of resilience for a long time. I appreciate that within what you're saying, there is an invitation here for people to invest in spending time and getting to know themselves, Mm -hmm. both in terms of what they love to do, as well as how they work best, and to then speak up and actually have a voice with their their bosses or their manager to say, here's how I work best. Mm -hmm. How can we? you know, craft the job to work better for me, or here's how it would work best for me to shape my days. How can we work with that? And to be flexible with that too, right? We we do work within organizations where we need to work with other people mm-hmm. and collaborate. I think many of us wait for our companies or our managers to ask these questions of us, and not of all of them are as evolved as you, Doug, <laughs> and instead of us taking on some responsibility yes. ourselves and starting to recognize, ooh, I can start to do this for myself. And you have to take that responsibility because the company is never going to do that. Let's face it. They're just not going to come to you and say, tell me, please, how can I get, you know, it's just not going to happen. So you have to do it for yourself. You know, it is sort of these simple things, I think, of keeping a journal of what you like to do and what you didn't like to do or the circumstances. And, you know, that that led to, God, when I really nailed this thing or when I really felt good about this or when I'm really in a flow state, these are the conditions. And, you know, you may not be able to 100% sculpt your job and that sort of thing. But if you could make your, if you could use this and make your job 10% better, 20% better, you make it 20% better and you're kind of, you know, into a different ball game for your life. 
You said that in your last role, you put a lot of focus on culture and building psychological safety. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if what you're talking about in terms of asking about how people work and what have you fits into that. But, you know, that idea of psychological safety Mm -hmm. is bantered about a lot these days. And you know, you said you said that you spent an inordinate amount of time constructing and living the practices and behaviors to make this happen. Mm-hmm. And I was curious, like specifically around this idea of psychological safety. I'm curious what it looked like for you to spend time in helping to support that or create that type of environment. Yeah. So I'll I'll describe maybe a little bit about the reason I did that, and then what what we tended to do. So we built this team to drive digital transformation, and and um, 25-ish person team. And it was very, is still a very diverse team. Lots of different expertises that span from media, data engineers, data scientists, technologists, strategists, Um, many, many people, uh, maybe most from outside the company, many people actually from outside the industry because our industry didn't have these skills. So I was thinking, gosh, how am I going to pull such a diverse group of people together who do very different things into a team. How are we going to become a team? You know, it's not like we're all doing the same thing. And I just decided based on my experience, we would just lean into the building a culture that was going to work and get everybody to perform their best. And the main kind of attribute I always felt strongly about was this idea of psychological safety, that we would really build a team around that concept. Um, so that was the reason for doing it was trying to was was really about how to how to build an identity um, that would create this kind of common um, sense of team. So the first thing that we did was to just create a like a purpose statement for our team, which was answering the question, why does this team we, we call the marketing or is called the marketing transformation team? Why does the marketing transformation team exist inside the company? And we basically said we exist to place the big bets that are going to transform the capability of marketing, basically the ability to use data and technology to do one-to-one marketing, the big shift of the model in a company like like Aquarius. So the reason for doing this is the first part of psychological safety is to create a sense of purpose and belonging. Okay, we all understand what we're here for. The reason this team exists is we're all about these big bets. And then we were very explicit. Well, that means we're kind of an innovation group. And what that means is we're, we got to be a learning culture. So we started to be very explicit about we're about growth mindset. Um, we're about trying things. So a set of behaviors. And these behaviors were all about, in my mind, trying to get us to think banding thinking and instead of contracting thinking. You know, in large businesses, that have a lot of pressure, the control mindset and the pressures tend to cause people to constrict their thinking. Fear tends to cause that. So I was trying to get like the opposite. Okay, so growth mindset innovation. So that was sort of the second thing. The third thing, and they talk about this a lot with this concept, psychological safety is vulnerability. So I tried to be, and it's it's more probably just my nature. When I'm wrong, I'm the first one to say, describing my struggles. Everybody thinks, oh, Doug's a guy who has his shit together. I'm like, hey, let me tell you, I had several episodes of massive anxiety 
like disorder in earlier of my jobs. It's what's led me on this path. Okay. Uh, you know, needed professional help to overcome a lot of anxiety. So that, you know, or here's what's going on in my personal life right now. My mom is dying of Alzheimer's disease, whatever it might be. So I found that what they write about was very true. If the leader is a little bit vulnerable, it tells people, okay, it's okay to be human. It's okay to, you know, not always have your shit together. Then I did some simple things like I always, every quarter, had a coffee chat with everybody on the team, everybody except my direct report. So I was in a lot of contact with, and it was, there's no agenda. It's just a coffee chat, no agenda, whatever you want to talk about. And some people would talk about work, but a lot of people were just, we just talk about other things. So the net effect of all of these little things together was for people to say, I sense on this team, I can be myself and that's going to be okay. I think I could ask for things and I'm not going to be laughed at or think I'm being out of line. And if things are not going okay, I think I could raise it and we could kind of work it out. And as a result of that, what people are going to do and what people did was, hey, we have a huge number of ideas happening and we're trying all these different things but we're trying to completely shift the model you know of how this large company works so it needs a lot of different ideas and people are like i think we could just try and and raise these and the result of that was we had the that team had the highest engagement scores of any team in company history and we over delivered very difficult goals financial goals by 3x and I say that not to perform, but to say this is what got me to realize this is what works. If you create a, this culture that allows people essentially sus sustainable ambition to be themselves, to do their work in the right way, this leads to unbelievable work performance and output. You know, so I'm doing it because I'm trying to be a good person, but I also realized. This is how you get results, right? You don't get results by just screwing the screws down, right? And instilling fear in people. It doesn't work. This works like crazy. People would ask me like, what are you doing on your team, Doug? How are you getting this? I'm like, this is all we're doing. I'm telling people I had an anxiety attack. We're all aligning around a mission. We're all talking about like, hey, growth <laughs> mindset. That's what we're trying to do, right? I mean, like I'm having coffee catch-ups. Like this is what we're doing. And it really works. And it's, what you're sharing is that all seems really within reach, mm -hmm. right, for people to do. And I think this is a good transition, Doug, to, you know, now you retired from Clorox, but you haven't really retired, mm -hmm. as I alluded to earlier. I'd love to hear more about your current ambition yeah. and what you've stepped into in terms of helping companies really transform their cultures and what made you want to take this next stage in your career and contribute in this way? Yeah. Well, so yes, as as you said, I I um, started this partnership with uh, Alistair, Alistair Creamer. So we have Creamer Millican. We pretty much sort of started it the day after I left Clorox. We had actually started working on it probably a year before talking about it. And it really came out of a lot of that out of the story I just told. So... You know, I was always interested in the human part of business. It's partly why I was in marketing. Um, 
I think partly because of that, sometime a few years back, the company asked me to co-lead a big culture transformation project at Clorox. So they wanted it, we wanted to become a bolder organization. And the CEO asked myself and a colleague if we would spend about a third of our time, ended up being about five years leading a company-wide culture initiative. This is where I ended up meeting my partner, Alistair, who had a consultancy that, that helped us. So I got a lot of experience of how do you change the culture at a scale of a 8,000 person company and seeing the, the impact of that. But then I got into this marketing transformation team and had that experience I just mentioned where I just saw it so at such a granular level in my personal experience, the power of culture. So when it got to 35 years, and I, I mean, I had the best career ever. I mean, my time at Clarks was amazing. It was such a good company to me, for me. But after 35 years, I was just ready for the next chapter. And at that point, I just realized that every CEO um, believes culture is important. But most of them, I think, because culture is a bit abstract, tend to think of it a little bit as a second string lever. I don't think they think of it as, hey, there's strategy and capital allocation and culture. But my experience was it is a hard core business lever. It drives business results. And it does it like crazy. And it does it actually without a lot of traditional investment, right? And so my partner, Alistair, who, you know, is of the same thinking, you know, we just felt like this is what I want to dedicate the next part of my career to. How can you help organizations by making culture more sort of center plate and bring getting it down to a level where you say you can intention, you plan intentionally your culture and shape it in a way that leads to much greater performance. And if you do that, the amazing thing is you make people's lives happier, you make teams perform better, you make the organization better, and you get better outcome. So this is sort of our mission is, is, is how do we help to do this? So, so that's our focus is on helping organizations evolve their cultures. Generally, it's, you know, most companies are trying to get somewhere in the future. Currently, the company isn't kind of operating in the in the way they need. We need to become bolder. We're kind of too incremental. And they need change of behavior. So we're really just trying to help companies speed up the behavior change needed to help them, you know, with the change with the change efforts. I'm curious where you think this culture work intersects with where the world of work is going these days, you know, like hybrid work and AI focus. And you've talked about concerns about work becoming, say, more transactional. And I feel like you're also leaning into, in, con in contradiction to AI in some respects, although AI isn't about like eliminating humans completely, but you're really trying to unlock human potential. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious where you think we're headed in terms of what's the role of culture in this world of work that is really changing pretty significantly right now? Yeah, incredibly relevant question. The way that we've been thinking about it is there's a more maybe fundamental place to address and attack this question um, I think a lot of companies are struggling with things like return to office. How do we get people back in the office? 
how do we you know collaborate and things like that to which i i don't know that they're great answers yet there's not a lot of data yet that's saying this is what to do it's it's just, it's just all too new so as we've thought about well how do you address it more fundamentally we're getting to this place um of talking about belonging and thinking what you really want to do is to tackle the, the issue of belonging in an organization and if you can tackle the issue of belonging these other challenges around how to collaborate and return to work and operate in this hybrid or decentralized way will kind of sort themselves out so in other words an environment where people feel they belong there's probably a few characteristics of it one is they have a very clear purpose so we all understand why we're here they probably have a strong sense of identity not only the purpose but this is what you know this is what we are as a team these are kind of our our norms these are things that define us these are traits so we're kind of we've got this tribe some set of norms um, I think the idea of psychological safety, you know, you get belonging through um, having that psychological safety. Our feeling is you work at this level. Does the organization have a really clear purpose that people are bought into? At a team level, do you have an identity that says, you know, this is what we are about as a team? Are the norms of how you operate kind of clear? Do you have a sense of psychological safety? And I think if you have those, that leads to, hey, I belong to this team. And I think if everybody on a team felt a high sense of belonging, these other things, the performance would all work out. So, right. So I, I think rather than attacking how many days in the office and hybrid not, hybrid meetings, this is this is the level that we're trying to work at to solve those problems. Yeah, so to shift the narrative to like a broader, bigger kind of perspective, if you will. And so I feel like in out in the work culture, if you will, or the the kind of ethos of what's being talked about, about work culture, you, you sometimes have this sense of uh, individuals actually really desiring belonging mm-hmm. from a standpoint of just like, we're a lonely society Definitely. across the world, right? right? Um, and yet, there is also a little bit of pushback on you know, this idea of like work as family yeah. or a sense potentially I'm I'm linking it to belonging. Do you have any reaction to that? Because I think yeah. you're actually right that I think when people go to work, they do want it to be meaningful. Yeah. They do want a sense of belonging or really that their contribution is going to matter. Definitely. And I I do think you're right that you there is a line. Some people want work to be family. A lot of people don't. So I think that having a sense of belonging does not need to, if that team doesn't want it to be that, that means, you know, we're across some boundary of work and personal life. I think it just means when I'm in the context of this group, I'm at work, I belong in that group because you may have a sense of belonging in your family. You may have a sense of belonging with a set of friends. You may have a sense of belonging with your pickleball pickleball team. You know, it doesn't, all all those things. So I think it's just about creating the respectable sense of belonging within that work culture and, and then what works for that team. It doesn't mean we, that work has to be life and vice versa. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Well, I wanted to try to wrap up the conversation around 
kind of going back to career and managing your career. And I'm, I am curious as you're stepping into this next adventure and ambition with this consulting, how do you view this next stage of your career? 35 years after Clorox, now at this stage, you could have probably just stopped working, Doug. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, but you know, what made you kind of want to step into wanting to have an impact in this way at this time? And how do you actually think about this stage of your career? Well, I I had a couple of goals when I was thinking about, you know, time for a next chapter and did I want to stop working and that kind of thing. And I I basically over a period of time got to what I wanted to do next was three things. Number one, I want to stay engaged. I like working. I wasn't ready to not work, uh, but the the role of working was I just want to stay engaged in the world. So that was really the num- number one. Number two was but I want to do that in a way where I'm helping people. That's where the satisfaction, a lot of what I did at Clorox all those years, building capabilities and things was really about helping teams, you know, perform better. So helping people. And number three, do that in some configuration, meaning with somebody else, that's really fulfilling. And in my partner, Alistair, we found just an incredible fit. And so that ended up becoming sort of my criteria, stay engaged, help people, configuration that that really was personally meaningful. And so this type of work, you know, really fit. And it's, I guess it's also, you know, while we're out, I'm an entrepreneur now, we're having to sell a service and all of that, really at the heart of it for both of us is, is really this sort of giving back and helping. The satisfaction I get, I think we both get, is when people tell us, oh my gosh, we haven't had these conversations, this is really helping. Um, and it gets, it, it's a little bit to sort of phases of a career. You know, I think you're, the early part of your career is, is kind of answering, what am I good at? What, what kind of role do I want? What works for me? You're getting yourself situated on a path. Your your mid-career is kind of about, hopefully, about flourishing or thriving, like you're making things better in whatever it is you're doing, but you're you're finding your role, you're attacking big problems. And then later, you know, you are starting to kind of harness your wisdom, you know, and you're starting to it starts to feel more fulfilling to spend more of your time in a role where you feel like you're really helping people to have a better experience, in this case, a better experience at work. And so that's, you know, that's a big, big, big part of it. Yeah, I think that's what I'm, that's what I'm up to. And you are also living the digital nomad yeah. life right now and went abroad. I'm, I just love that. And I'm curious what you're learning so far in this experiment. I think what really strikes uh, my wife and I, so we've been here in London for about four months and we did quite a lot of traveling early when we came over here. It's just how adaptable we are. You know, here we are and it's like, oh, we figured it out. My our supermarket, my coffee place, the gym. It's sort of starting to feel like home. I had to go back to, I was back in New York for, for work and kind of got delayed getting back. And I was like, I just want to get home. And I was like, oh, that's weird because I'm thinking about our flat in London, which I've only been in for you know a short time. 
we got traveling and, and I kind of realized after we were somewhere for like two days, it was like, okay, we're sort of adapted. We sort of know, you know, where things are. So yeah, I, I just really struck with how adaptable uh, we are. And, and then I think the second thing that strikes me is how similar people are. You know, you just, it doesn't matter what city you go to or what, we're in rural parts of Norway. You know, people are kind of getting up and having coffee, taking their kids to school, going to work, picking their kids up, watching TV, you know. And it's, you know, there's just so much, so much more similarity among people even though the cultural differences are really significant, what drives us as people is so similar. Beyond the fact that just London is a great city to live in. That's my other learning. But those are those are my two big takeaways. Yes, yes, I love that. Well, and I think that's also a bit of, you know, you continuing, it seems to continue to embrace this idea of a growth mindset and being willing to challenge yourself and continue to learn. This has been a wonderful conversation, Doug. I've learned so much from speaking with you. I'm curious if there's just a parting wisdom you'd want to share for people listening, just about managing a successful filling career over time. Both my main theme has really been about defining that for yourself. It's very easy to define a fulfilling career as what a resume is going to look like sort of resume management or what a headhunter says you should do. And I did all those things and it got me into terrible trouble. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying this because I learned the lesson the hard way. I think a fulfilling career is about defining what it is for you, about what you want to do, how you work, and finding this way, uh, this sounds bigger than it needs to be, but how you express yourself in your work. But it's really about defining it internally instead of defining it through an external yardstick. That would be my probably most overarching learning. I love this. It's very congruent with what I think about when it comes to sustainable ambition. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you underscoring that for people. Doug, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they find you? They can find me on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest place. Um, Doug Millican on LinkedIn or um, Doug at dreamerandmillican.com. Um, so I have an email there. We have a website, dreamerandmillican.com, any of those ways. Awesome. Well, I will ca absolutely capture that in the show notes. Thanks so much for being on with me, Doug. I've really appreciated the conversation. It's been totally my pleasure. It's great catching up. There was so much great wisdom in this conversation with Doug. I'll share just a few things that stood out for me. First, how Doug defined his career ambitions as work that he loved, that he was good at, and doing it at a place that valued what he had to offer. I loved how this was internally driven and really self-defined. And not only did this lead to success, but it actually made the work sustainable for Doug. I mean, he was actually skipping to work each day. This really resonates with me and is in line with how I think about sustainable ambition. And I loved how Doug shared that by defining ambitions in this way, it really helps support sustainability and our resilience. Really smart. Another thing I really appreciated was how we talked about how we have more agency than we think to craft our careers and our roles to what we want. 
I appreciated that Doug emphasized we do need to take responsibility for this. Yes, our companies have a role, but really we are in a position to take on this responsibility and help our companies help us shape our work in a way that is going to work better for us. If we could just make our work 10 or 20% better, that can make a really big difference. So it's worth stepping up and taking responsibility and starting to craft a role that really works for you. Now in doing that, it does take self-reflection. You need to know yourself. And I love Doug's brilliant and simple exercise to do in terms of evaluating for a week or two. What do you love? What do you hate? What is neutral? You know, and then look at the patterns across a week. What do you really get excited about doing versus what would you rather not do? And how can you look at that and start to shape a role that is a better aligned and in tune with you? Another aspect that Doug brought up, he said a lot of people on his team didn't necessarily know this information. And I think it's right. I don't think we always pause to really think about this for ourselves, but is to get clear on how we work in a way that works best for us. So how can you become more aware so that you can then ask for what you want? I love the question that Doug brought up, this idea of what's a best day at work for you? So reflect on that for yourself. What would a best day at work be for you? And then how might you be able to take some of the answers and responses from that to have a conversation with your leader around how you might be able to optimize your job to make it work better for you? Now, if you are a leader, I hope you get inspired by what Doug shared in terms of the kind of results he was able to achieve for his people and the organization when he invested in building a positive culture within his organization. The things he described are not out of reach for us. These things aren't that complex. They just take a commitment of time. But if you make that commitment, you could unlock employee engagement and drive better results. Why wouldn't you do it? So I hope you get inspired by this conversation and also know that Doug is a resource if you want to step into that culture work. So what about for you, as you reflect on today's conversation, what spoke to you and what might be one insight that caught your attention that you want to take action on? With that, thank you for being here with me to learn from Doug Milliken. I'll be back in your feed in two weeks with more on sustainable ambition. In the meantime, you can find show notes for this and other episodes at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. And make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. You can sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. Thanks for being here. See you next time.